the Production Expert podcast with Mike Thornton, Julian Rogers, and Dan Cooper. Welcome to the Production Expert podcast number 356. It's the February the 11th, 2019. I'm Mike Thornton. I'm Julian Rogers. And I'm Dan Cooper. Uh, as to deals, uh, we've got some great deals from our partners on our deals page, so check those out. Some are not going to last for much longer, so uh, if you're interested in a deal, then uh, go and check out the deals on the deals page. And we'll move straight on to our talking points, and these are sponsored by Universal Audio. Good morning, children. This is Fab DuPont. The Pro Tools Expert Podcast talking points are brought to you with the support of Universal Audio. Looking to get that big analog console sound from your in-the-box mix? From now through to the end of March 2019, purchase a UAD2 DSP accelerator and get the world's most authentic Neve API, SSL and UA console emulation plugins with a value of up to $1,196. Absolutely free. For more information, check the link in the podcast notes. Okay, first talking point. Uh, was an article that uh, you produced, Dan. Uh, is it worth recording and mixing your songs at 192K sample rate? Um, this was a bit of a sort of unknown territory for you, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was a bit. Um, I can't remember what sparked the idea, but uh, I, I had a weekend coming up with not a lot to do in it. So I thought I'd play around in the studio uh, just for myself for a bit of fun. And I thought, you know what? My HDX card, I've never really maxed it out. I've never really stretched its legs sample rate wise. Um, and I was having a conversation with a friend about this some time ago. And it was like, what's the point of HDX? And obviously explaining the latency and DSP and all that sort of stuff. But the 192 thing did come up in that conversation. And he said, have you ever, you know, works at that? And I haven't. So in the seven years I've had me HDX, I've never um, played with one of its features um, I know 192, you can find it on lots of uh, audio interfaces, budget interfaces, but it's the almost zero latency thing of it when you're tracking. You can still get that um, with the HDX. So I thought, sod it, let's have a little go. Let's see if uh, I can uh, max this out. Let's see if the computer starts shouting at me after eight tracks. I don't know what was going to happen. Um, so I started with some drums, put some bass down, a bit of acoustic guitar, all seemed fine. Uh, and I just kept going until I thought, you know, or felt that the song was sort of done and just the, you know, this sounds brilliant. And I wasn't really doing a hell of a lot. It's just, you know, good mic choice. Uh, then playing around with plugins and reverbs and thought, wow, hold on a minute. You know, it's, it's not the placebo. Um, I can hear a difference here because I know what my drum kit sounds like in my room. I've been recording it at 44.1 for the last few months, you know, same mics, same room, same player, uh, same kit. Um, the acoustic guitar, you know, same mics always use on it, pretty much the same mic placement, uh, but there's a depth to it that I haven't heard before. Um, so there was lots of little things I felt were, were richer. That's not the right words. Um, it's an overall thing, if I'm honest. A mix of all of the little bits of improvement from, I think, the higher sample rate, much so higher sample rate that I normally work at. I could hear a difference. Definitely. But other people think differently. <laughs> and we welcome that here at Pro Tools Experts. So... Yeah, certainly yes. did think a bit differently. I mean, there was a, a, a very uh, broad mix of opinions, I think yeah. you would be safe to say. Um, 
now obviously as some of you pointed out this was not a a a a b comparison no but as dan's already pointed out uh he knows his own room he knows his own drum kit no monitors Um, all of it you know it's uh and uh, you've been working you know these are all tools that you've been working with for a long time so yes okay they're not you know double blind listening tests or all the rest of it but there is uh, certainly anecdotal um evidence and uh, but one of the things that was very interesting and a couple of uh, comments uh, one in the uh, in the comments on the article uh, pointing to a uh, an article from production advice uh, Ian Shepherd um, someone who I would certainly uh, listen to um, and also a, a comment which was going to be in the uh, community feedback uh, later on in the show which we'll we'll bring to the fore now um byron james uh, said i saw this post about how sample rates uh, and the and the post was talking about how unnecessary high frequencies are so he's referring to a post in a different site he's not talking about our article and he gives us a link um and we'll put that in the show notes but in essence, the article is referring to uh, something that happened uh, back in 2012 when there was the whole Neil Young uh, uncompressed high sample rate audio uh, instead of MP3 uh, debate. Uh, Julian, you've taken a look at this article. What's the sort of... Because uh, it's, it's a mammoth article that... Uh, byron links to but what's the sort of general uh, cons- uh, uh, sort of summary of what this article is referring to yeah it is a big article it took me longer to scroll down it than it does to read most of the articles on product production experts so <clears throat> i mean there's a lot of stuff in there some of some of which is good stuff some of which i, I don't think either of us could quite see the point in sort of being in there it was all true enough but didn't see the relevance but the bit Paddy. that sort of leapt out at me was um was there was a bit about saying um if you've got um I'm I'm reluctant to use the word ultrasonic because that suggests kind of something slightly different to what we mean but frequencies above the human range of hearing or above 20k let's not go into that whole thing actually but yeah above 20k particularly frequencies well above 20k um and this links into a, a post that I've I've written which is partly inspired by this, but is yet to publish, which kind of looks at this, actually. But um, the majority of the equipment that we use, um, while it might work well above um, you know, Nyquist limit for you know, 44 or 48K, the testing just stops there. I mean, if you look at, if you look at the specs for microphones, look at the specs for really good microphones, go on DPA's site, for example. Now, I mean, they, they make good mics. They've got a heritage from their B&K days of making measurement equipment. Yeah, measurement mics, yeah. But you, you look through the specs on their mics and try to find something that quotes a frequency response above 20K. And if you were to go off the specs, you'd think that they, it doesn't happen. I'm quite sure it does. I think what the specs are saying is it is good to 20K because that's as far as we've tested it to because that's what we're interested in. I don't believe that I don't believe that there's some, suddenly some kind of you know steep roll off above those frequencies, particularly for sort of like the small diaphragm condensers and stuff. Yeah. But that's what you'll see, and if you look across most microphones, that's what you'll find. 
a notable a notable exception to this is earthworks for example which are pretty much measurement mics anyway i mean if you go to you know um uh, a reasonable budget gig you're more than likely going to see an Earthworks mic at front of the house feeding like a smart system or something. But they they spec in that. You can get those little, tiny little pointy-ended Omnis and uh, there's a 30K model and there's a 50K model and whatever. And I'm sure what they're saying is this is this is we've designed this and tested it and we will we verify and confirm that it is to within these specs to those frequencies. But if you were to point that at a uh, high-frequency sound source, something that yeah, you know, say it was good to twenty k. It's still going to hear it. <laughs> it just won't yeah. necessarily hear it within given parameters, and they're not offering any guarantees. The same same stuff as that works with all of our transducers and uh, and all of our gear. Actually, I mean the whole super analog thing with SSL. Um, with the it was the J and the K stuff, wasn't it? There was a SSL, and it had no no capacitors in the signal path. That's right, isn't it? And the whole thing with that was just kind of like fifty k bandwidth, but. Still, it's kind of like they're actually saying that, saying that stuff and, and investigating how it operates outside of our normal sphere of influence. That's all I'm saying, really. And mm. what this article was saying was that those frequencies with uh, coming back at you know, who knows what kind of... I mean, how flat is the gear that you're using outside of its normal parameters? We're not offering any any predictions about that stuff but you can get some unpleasant side effects and one interesting point was about some indifference frequencies which are usually filtered out by in in any kind of ADDA process um because uh, you can get intermodulation effects and the difference frequencies between two very high frequencies can be down in the audio spectrum in the same way as the difference frequencies between the sampling frequency and a high frequency sound above the Nyquist limit, which is why they're filtered out during uh, during A to D conversion. And yeah, it's something to think about. Although, you know, later on, if it gets filtered out by a filter going through Nyquist, then that's absolutely fine. So I'm, I'm not sure I necessarily take the point all the way through with that. I, I'm, I'm going to kind of... I'm going to step back slightly from this one just because I can see benefits on both sides. I'm, I mm. don't work at high sample rates. The main reason I tend not to work at high sample rates is because it creates more issues for me than it solves. And I yeah. think that's going to be the case for an awful lot of people. For example, one of my things that I groan about is when I'm using someone else's session and I'm doing some stuff for the site. Dan, you're a good one. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thing that keeps coming about. There's a session that you gave me. And... Um, I forget because I had to uh, export out a 48K version because the original was at 96. I'm sure that would have come from you. Mm, if it doesn't, sounds then, about right. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But uh, wherever this, this session came from, if I've opened a 96K session and then I try to do my whole screen capture workflow and I'm working at 96K, I'm opening up a whole bag of pain. And it's like, no, 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 no. But that's not a reason of fidelity. It's a reason of convenience. But in the same way that, you know, it, my computer is is not necessarily going to behave itself particularly well because I've got the oldest computer on the team. By No, actually, I don't have the oldest computer on the team, but I've got the slowest I computer do. on the team. <laughs> by far. 2009 macro. Yeah, watch yeah. this space. Yeah. We'll I see. Win. I'm going I'm, I'm I'm to shift up a gear on that front. But, yeah, yeah. Um, what I'm saying is that uh, is that... Uh, there's all sorts of unknowns when you start using equipment outside of its 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 Intended, specification. Yeah. Yes. Intended use. Definitely. And I don't believe specs on microphones or speakers when they say twenty k to twenty k 
what I'm saying is you're saying it's good within that, but they're not saying anything about what's outside of those limits. Mm. That That is one argument, though, about we just saying about the microphones. Uh, but in the box, there were a lot of interesting things. Uh, obviously, the, uh, the size of the session was um, sizable. Over 16 gigs, uh, a couple more tracks, I think, would have pushed that to 20 quite quickly. Not a problem these days with hard drives being very cheap. Um, but I noticed a big difference in Melodyne. Yeah, uh, no, I, you I said about I'd, this. Explain. Yeah, I thought I'd poke it with a stick a little bit. So I got um, uh, my wife in to sing on, on the song. It was one of her songs anyway, so why not? And uh, she had a great take. It was it was bang on um, but there was a couple of lines I thought I would change um, if I was to do this at 44.1 actually change the melody line um, not by much by a tone and put a little step in the note so instead of being a long legato note I put a step into the note I chopped it and a little step out at the ends and I know from experience of um, melodying in my, my wife's vocal and doing these sort of things at lower sample rates you hear the the tuning work sort of thing it's it's a bit irritating you know so much so that i would say can you re-sing it please like this i did it at the 192 and i couldn't hear um any sort of artifacts or that sort of modulation sort of effect you would get when you sort of push a note further than a tone it sounded absolutely 100 percent natural i thought okay there's something in this definitely with melodyne you can push it um and it's more forgiving I would say, uh, which is a good thing, personally. Um, yeah, I, the again the 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 article uh, from uh, Ian Shepherd and also this article that uh, uh, Byron refers to seem to come from a similar perspective in terms of if you can't hear it, don't worry about it, um, and that kind of sort of flies in the face with a lot of other things that one does. Um, why would we want to take high-res images and then downsize them? Because we know that if if you acquire the images at the uh, spec that you're going to deliver them, uh, they're not as they're not as good. Yeah, and yeah. Also, it's, like, it's like working on a DSLR. You're going to get a 22 yeah. m- uh, megapixel image, and then you're going to put it on a blog or something. You know what I mean? That's uh, yeah. uh, I don't know. Uh, not even a tenth of that. But you've done what you needed to do with the image, and you haven't got any of that pixelated crap going on. But also, and, there's a there's a future proofing yeah, um, yeah. arguments here, uh, which again, I think, especially for images, if you if you, if you capture it at a much higher res than you perhaps you intend to use it for. This time round, if you want to use it in a different environment, then you've future-proofed yourself. Well, how about um, the Townsend mic in this situation as well? As I said in the article, I've had this thing on, on loan for quite a while. And don't get me wrong, it's a microphone. I absolutely adore it. But the plug-in, I've been playing around with it, going, I really want to appreciate this technology. Because I know James likes it, and um, a few of us on the team have played with it and like it. And I want to love it. Um, and I didn't love it as much as I thought I would, um, up until I used it in the 192 session. And the microphone, differences in microphone models in the plug-in, night and day different. There's, what, three AKG models in there. Four 4.1 sessions or 48, whatever. I couldn't hear the difference between them. I thought, are my ears blocked? Surely. Yeah. I, I, I just don't have those ears. I'm, I, you know, whatevs. Um, but then at 192, yeah, I can hear the differences. I couldn't tell you what the differences are now because I haven't listened to the session in a week. But at the time... I could close my eyes and flick between them and hear those microphones. And it, it felt like 
I've just been given a working Townsend mic <laughs> or a new microphone to play with, a new system. It was that uh, much better. I think it's a really useful way to look at it in terms of image editing. And absolutely, the, the, the point of working on a high-res image is that it gives you much more flexibility while editing. I mean, it's a production decision. You can and, zoom in, for, and, in, for example. Well, I mean, yeah. you can zoom in, but also, you you know, things the things that you want to do, the editing things you want to do, and also when it comes down to colour depth and all those kind of things, if you've got a crunched-down JPEG that's at your output resolution, there's loads of stuff that you can't do to it that you can do if you've got a nice high-res raw file or something. And it's a, it's a very useful way of looking at it. And that, that analogy is going to break down at some point, but... As a broad principle, that totally makes sense to me. It depends how much you're going to do to the stuff, really. But and I mean, if you're getting in and really changing the nature of the sound, like yes, with Melodyne... sound design, then, or sound design. Well, I mean, sound design was something that I wrote down, actually, because this is this has been my um, sort of uh, my irrefutable usefulness use. <laughs> uh, that's, that's gone wrong already, but you know what I mean. Uh, for, um, yeah. for 192... Uh, and this really brings out the whole thing about using transducers outside of their um, in these high frequency ranges. Is um, if you've got a if you've got an HDIO and HDX and you've not had a go at recording at one nine two, and then bringing those and forcing them into a forty eight session, so they play back at quarter speed with no artifacts, is kind mm. of interesting. And I mean, this is a thing that has been done quite a bit in sound design for kind of like yes. acquiring and changing the nature of sounds. The thing that I found when I first tried it was I just went, okay, there's not a great deal up there. <laughs> but <laughs> probably a lot of what that is, is, I mean, you have to choose your, your sound source carefully because, yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> you, you, you're kind of, you're, you're going in blind as it were because you, you, you don't know what's in those top octaves that you can't hear and whether or not things are as interesting as you imagine. But also, the first thing I found was just I was really I was really feeling like the microphone wasn't capturing half of what what I was expecting to hear up there because it was you know two octaves outside of its uh, trying to work two octaves outside of its its upper limit and can, it depends can, on the mic you choose. Can I be honest though? I mean, there's there's two ways of testing things like this. There's one which just you're sitting there and listening and you could do blind shootouts and all that sort of stuff until the cows come home. Of course you could. Or there's another way of testing this sort of stuff. And it's how I like to test stuff like this and like monitors is I don't like to listen clinically. I like to get dug in and put things to work and actually work in a real life sort of situation to get to know how this sort of stuff works and how it makes me feel and what my interpretations are. So a little bit like when I get monitors in for review, I don't just sit there and play my favourite tracks and listen to them and go, oh, don't they sound nice? I can hear that there's maybe some top end there or some roundness in the monitors. I actually put them to work. I will do something for a client, a paid gig, um, and see if they stand up. And much like the way I test monitors with this 192, I had to make a song in order to have uh, an opinion on this. Um, and my opinion is that I honestly think the higher detail being captured, and I'm using that word detail, even though if it's slight, in the bigger picture of things, it's better. Yes, there are so many drawbacks. Of course there are. Um, if I wasn't using my HDX rig, I'm sure I'd get some you know, irritating latency going on. But pff, if I had a computer that was any less uh, was less powerful than what I've got, of course I would just hit the limit straight away and would be frustrated. But luckily, um, I have got some nice gear that can handle this. So I could test it without having any technical issues. Um, so it was all about the sound and the feel of the session and... 
the plugins and yeah, as I said, like the Melodyne and the Townsend uh, really surprised me in that session. You know, I'm going to reinvestigate that Townsend again at 96 um, in another session when I've got some time coming up. That's the thing Just, it's screaming out for, isn't it? Is 96. Mm. It is. I'm going to, I'm going to try this again. It's a happy medium. To see where the point is, where the yes. behaviour yeah. of these things diverges. And if it's, absolutely. if it's absolutely. between 48 and 96, then happy days. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. kind of running over kind of what we're seeing as pros and cons on this. I mean, you mentioned latency, and it's a point that I make a lot, is that if you if you dub, double or even quadruple the sampling frequency, then you're, you're halving or quartering your your um your latency in a in a non HDX system. Yeah, because it's number of samples and therefore yeah. Uh, the n- number of samples doesn't change, but the duration of them changes. Exactly. So there you go. Um uh th- there's a there's a voice impact on an HDX system especially. Um that's yeah. gonna, that's so, the, the, so the the extra voices will come in handy. That, well yeah. as and when they appear, <laughs> absolutely. But I mean on any system there's gonna be a there's gonna be a, a hit in terms of CPU load and there's yeah. definitely gonna be a hit in terms of project size. Um, what else are we talking about? Other things that would that would kind of affect things? Um, that they're the major kind of technical downsides. But well, there's the inter, the, there's the whole uh, very um, uh, issue. I won't even give it a descriptor. The issue of intermodulation distortion because of frequencies mixing, which you alluded to earlier on. I mean that, but again, that's something that can. In a properly designed system, you should be able to handle. Indeed, it, it shouldn't happen. Yeah, and there, therein lies the, the 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 challenge. And certainly, if you're if you're delivering this sort of stuff to the end user, that's when it can really start to come mm. back and bite you. Coming coming out from the workflow stuff and just the kind of the pure fidelity stuff. Uh, this piece that I wrote, I was talking about this. Um, I mean, I was saying there's there's not that many microphones that that are specced to work in this range from uh, up to, well, I mean, we're talking crazy high, actually, with 192, mm. but even with 96, up to up to 40K, only to 40 kilohertz, you know. Um, and there's not many that are that are, um, that are are kind of uh, declaring their performance in that area, although everything... Not many monitors that go up that high either. Well, there's not Exclusion many ears that, that do that. I, think, I think the reality so. is that <laughs> we don't know what it does because it's not specified. Yeah, ask the cat. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I suspect that most brands... Are, will specify what they know people want to know which is the range does it work within the range of human hearing mm-hmm. uh we'll certainly not get into the debate of whether sure, you can sure. hear the yeah uh, but, the, hear but things the other stuff above your hearing range but yeah <laughs> the other stuff that i was calling out there was um i mean if you're looking at for a signal chain on the way in that is good to these high sample rates then um as well as the, uh, I, I'm trying to remember what uh, the Earthworks, of course, um, if you mm. want an Omni. But there are these new Sony mics, which I talk about in this piece that hasn't published yet. These high, new high def series mics. There's a there's some small diaphragm as an Omni and a cardioid that um, uh, are designed to work up there. And there's also a, um, a a large diaphragm condenser sort of side address mic. Although I, I think that's got two diaphragms actually. So in the same way as with the loudspeaker, you've got multiple drivers oh, yeah. to so cover it's like the, the old AKG two 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 o two, which had two diaphragms. Oh, that yeah, but was that? That was two diaphragms for different reasons. No, that, the, oh, you're talking about the old spaceship thing, like this love in Parliament. Yeah, yeah, the dynamic, the sintered one. Yeah, that yeah. that was for um, that was for uh, um, isolate for for cutting out ambience. It's the same as on old gigs. You see people with two microphones, one 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 way round, one the other. 
so that you just anyway that's a whole different thing although that's interesting yeah, okay yeah Ignore but that. the other thing i'd like to talk about that actually but let's not um uh, the <laughs> other thing i was talking about was um what front end can you have that's that's good to these high sample rates i mean obviously you can um uh, you can work with a few things but something that really came to mind was the ax32 the dad ax32 because that's not just good to 192 that's good to 384k because of uh, it's it's a it can work with dsd and uh, and also to dxd which is it kind of probably more useful in a production sort of setting um, but it's still 24-bit, and this is something that I only became aware of today, actually, sort of looking over the stuff from NAM that I missed. But the um, we've said for ages, talking about bit depth and saying, well, you know, 32-bit float, but of course there is no such thing as a greater than 24-bit A to D converter. Or so we thought, because uh, there is now, actually. There's a, there's a new thing, um, which I'll sort of call out now, which is the, the new Steinberg... AXR4 audio interface, which as well as being um, 384 kilohertz, um, presumably for DSD reasons or, and DXD reasons, also has a 32-bit integer converter, which is interesting. So that gives, yeah. uh, I'm trying to think, I mean, what on earth uh, dynamic range yeah. would that be? 192 decibel dynamic yeah. range at the converter. So, you know what I mean? These things can go down as well as across or whichever way you want to point. But uh, mm. high def, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I'm going to I'm gonna have to get in on that at some point when I've upgraded my computer and find out for myself. Because <laughs> as we would say, don't take anyone's word for it. No, play with the stuff yourself. If you've got the tools like, like mm. you know, I've got and you've never experienced it, just spend a day, have some fun, record your instruments, work with a band, whatever. Just have a go with it, you know. And if you if you find your computer sort of you know limping out on you, then just change the sample rate. Yeah. <laughs> New session. But find carry out where on. you find out where you, especially if you're doing, yeah, you know, yeah. Find uh, out what the limits are and have live, a go with it. Yeah, you know, acoustic music for want of a better word. Yeah. And sit there and get depressed, going, "I'm sure I used to be able to hear 16k." <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. Moving on. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, let's move along. Uh, Julian, we've competitions this month. Yeah, UJAM are offering a chance to win a copy of their full bundle. That's every virtual instrument they make. 13 virtual drummers, guitarists, bass players, beat makers, things like that. It usually costs over $1,200. Um, go, go to the win page and uh, click on the button to, uh, to enter. Very good. Okay, our second talking point... Um, again produced quite a bit of interest uh, and discussion uh, which was uh, an article uh, that again Dan from you where you, this idea of being able to produce uh, an, a DIY uh, soundproof isolation box for your computer for anybody who yes. um, has the computer in with you uh, and uh, despite uh, some of the comments uh, in the article to the contrary, and why would you ever do that, a lot of people have no choice. The computer is in the room. More um, people I know don't have that choice than people I know that have machine rooms or spare rooms they've drilled holes through to put their indeed. computer in. You know, can't get real. It's um, yeah. the, pretty much the entire home studio market crowd will have their computer next to them. That's what kind of that's kind of the signature and, of a home and studio. And the reality is a lot of people working from home will be in this. Pros Absolutely. working from home will be in exactly the same boat. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you've got a good workaround. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. But this, um, the reason why 
I, you know, this article came about, um, I was just sitting in my room uh, and I just thought, God, you know what? My 12 core does make more noise than my old 8 core um, that I'm using now. Uh, and it's dead quiet, the 8 core, but the 12 core is a little bit noisier. Um, and I just thought, is there something I can do about this? Is there something I can just, you know, research and yeah, just look through YouTube and found this brilliant video. I've got to say, um, Ryan Wiesner, a big shout out to you for this. Um, and he just shows us how you can build a box, um, get the airflow moving around it, how you can build the baffles on the back to put your cables through. Just it's, it's a cool idea. And I'm a DIY guy. I like to get my tools out and build things um, in a DIY way. So it's not always straight. <laughs> um, some of the screws might hang out, but I find it therapeutic. Hey, uh, so I liked it. it. It inspired me to have a go at this maybe one day. Um, yeah, you know, and if it cost me a hundred quid in bits and it doesn't work, well, I probably had a fun Saturday trying to build it. Um, and if it works and the airflow works, goes through it nicely and my studio is a bit quieter in the room, uh, then I'm a winner. Why not? But mm. it's a cool little video. Um yeah, Julian, you had a couple of thoughts on this. Uh, watching the video, I thought his place looked amazing. I mean, his, his, his nearest neighbour must be five miles away. I was thinking, you can make as much noise as you like. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, yeah, my thoughts about this. The main thing is, um, is if you want to avoid computer-based noise, don't have a laptop. Just don't. And the Very amount true. of people who who... Um, for convenience reasons, and I've I've had this conversation many many times about oh yeah I want to get a MacBook Pro because da 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 da, da. and they talk about how powerful it is, and I've had a powerful MacBook Pro before and I found it unlivable with just because the fan it, was going it sits flat there out. and it watches you and it waits until you open a microphone and it goes Vroom! and it's like, oh yeah. you again I used to do it when and I was um, you in can't Photoshop. get away from it it's right in front of you and it's mm. infuriating and it made me want to smash it. So, yeah, I mean, that's number one thing. If you're interested in having an easy life from a, from a uh, recording point of view and not having a noisy, noisy computer, just don't have a laptop. Have one as well, but have a desktop. This is what they're good for. Mm. Um, the, there's a couple of things, easy wins here, because doing this stuff, you can't just make a box and put a computer in it. It's in the same way as uh, if you try to build a, a studio and these people who, who go on ambitious room-within-room room builds. And the thing that all, is always the problem is ventilation. And if you make a hole in something for air to pass in and out of, then noise can go in and out of it too. And it's, you know, it, it's doable, but it's not easy. Um, there are a couple of easy wins here before you start doing that. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but there are some things to try first. The first one is um, is mechanical isolation rather than acoustic isolation. So much of the noise that your equipment might be making uh, is very often down to mechanical noise, it's especially, I mean, if you have a computer with mechanical drive in it, or, you, or you've got spinning hard drives or and, an they're, HDX on a, card. and they're on a, and they're on your <laughs> table then most of the noise that you're hearing probably isn't coming from the enclosure. It's coming from the table that it's vibrating. So stick it on something, isolate it. That will work really well. And the other one that, that's a really easy win is just if you've got, okay, you can't necessarily put your equipment in another room. Uh, here, actually, I can. I, I have a ready-made machine room if I want to use it. I don't need to because, again, it just introduced more issues than I need to solve the issues that I have, mostly to do with cables and cable lengths and how I get stuff to and from the machine. 
But uh, the big one is just if you've got a, a decent sized room, just put the things further away from you because the inverse square law works. And if you double the distance from something, uh, something is away from you, then the, the noise it makes will drop by. Uh, you'll get a quarter as much noise reaching you. So you can use that to your advantage. So just get the thing further away from you. It's very um, true. I had a smaller room in uh, my previous studio and I had I said, this old Mac in there. And, and when I would, would record acoustic guitars, it would get down the microphone. I've got a bigger room now, a noisier Mac, but it is further away from the microphone position because the, the room is bigger and it doesn't pick that up. It's just the whirring noise. I'll tell you when it does pick it up, when I do uh, screen cap videos. Because I'm pretty yeah. much on top of the thing with this microphone, and I've got to do a little bit of RX in just to get get that out. That's the only time it, you know, I can't do anything about that because I've got to be at my desk with a microphone. You know, of course. Yeah. Um, all the other times, it's just a bit of you know. Think about it. Don't point the microphone towards that corner of the room. Point it away. You know. Yeah, I mean, my sol- my solution uh, was to basically build a cupboard. Uh, I have a. A, 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 an old school house uh, in the UK with chimney breasts and so you've got what we call alcoves, little recessed areas each side of the chimney breast and I made one my uh, computer cupboard and the other is my uh, rack with all the rack mounted gear in it uh, so it doesn't eat into the room as much um, and uh, put a half-hour fire door on the front of the cupboard. Uh, and if you uh, listen to the and watch the video uh, in the link uh, in the article that, uh, from, uh, from Dan, um, you'll hear the noise go away as I shut the door. And, of course, the squeaky hinges, which I have <laughs> subsequently oiled. But there we go. Um, but, obviously, again, I had to address the airflow issue Uh but of course, again, with it being a much bigger space, uh, I was able to create um, uh, routes for the air in. I mean, air will flow round corners. That's the great thing. But sound tends to l- less well go round corners, especially if you put absorption material in said path, which is one of the reasons why um, Ryan's cabinet has got a lot of foam in it. It's all trying to absorb the air as it goes around the different paths to uh, get in and out um and so again that's essentially what i did i made uh, d- difficult paths um with different changes in direction put lots of sound uh, absorption material inside said uh, chambers and uh, so uh, i can get the airflow without um the noise and in fact i have um fans uh through very long um uh tubing which are effectively extracting the hot air straight from said cupboard um and of course the the reality is if you pull air out of the cupboard air is drawn in from somewhere else i.e the room i'm sat in um and hey presto um and in many respects that sort of neatly brings us on to the whole idea of what other things we can do to reduce the uh, ambient noise in our rooms because uh, i don't know about any either of you two but i require no heating in this room no addition no artificial heating like uh, central heating or radiator the radiator was removed no same completely surplus to requirements no, an ac30 <laughs> a rack of teglers and an old mac pro boils the uh, room nicely yeah um <laughs> 
so we often need uh, assistance chilling and air cons uh, again are another area that uh, can often generate uh, noise I was talking with Russ about this this afternoon and when he's doing any recording he has to turn his aircon off even though it's one of these split units where the, the chilling bit is outside um, the the inside part of it has a fan and it's too noisy um, again I was able to resolve that by putting the whole aircon uh, in a in the roof space uh, well away from the studio and then just use long bits of pipe uh, six inch um, ducting uh, lots of wiggled pass so again the noise doesn't come back down the tubing and hey presto uh, I have chill without noise I made so a mistake also- I made a mistake with my aircon when I was doing my studio builds we thought about how to get the pipes in and out at the back of the studio, the earth is higher. So it's like the, the studio building sunk into a, a, a mm. shallow hill. So we dug down into the earth and then drilled a hole through the bottom of the studio. So the pipework went underground. Clever. Nice. Yeah, it works. It works. Then we didn't really think about it. But we put the bloody outside unit, attached it to the building. <laughs> ah, so now you rattle the building. No, the outside's... Um, the acoustic chamber, sort of like on the inside of it, the room within a room, yeah. that bellows. So when I've got yeah. the aircon on, it's not just the of the inside yeah. unit. You get the, yeah, yeah, exactly. I thought, oh, why <laughs> did I do that? Uh, one day I'll get it down and put it on the floor. Yeah, should put it on something else. Yeah. yeah. Uh, any other thoughts about how to make our spaces quieter? Well, I'm just looking around the room right now and I'm thinking about anything that I've done in, in, in this room, which is it's an interesting space. I'm in a loft space and uh, in terms of the floor space, it's it's pretty large, but because I'm up in the pitched loft space, um, uh, obviously it gets, it gets narrower the higher up you go. But what I do have is I've got um, two quite large beams uh, at sort of, you know, shoulder height um, running the length of the room. And they're very useful for attaching things off. And what I've done to, because my, my computer's, the noise my computer makes is not an issue to me at all. But my drives can be annoying, um, as can also also power power supplies, power adapters, uh, particularly wall warts, sometimes put out acoustic acoustic noise. Really bad ones just have to go, frankly. But mm. uh, but even so, they do, you, it's one of those noises that you notice when it goes, you know, it's it's kind of there all the time, but it's a perfect candidate for being taken away, high frequency component, easily absorbed. And what I've got is I've just got some, um, uh, if I say a quilt, I don't mean a duvet. I mean a quilt. I mean like kind of a heavy, like a packing blanket. Hmm. But a couple of those just pinned up along these uh, along those spaces, the low, not very useful space um, below the beam, which has got a great deal of floor space. And all my drives live down there. And it's so effective because I can get to them very quickly just by pulling the quilt back and there they are. But you drop that back and all of that kind of annoying high-frequency drive noise, which, while not overwhelming, is kind of annoying enough to make, to put it a long way away from you, goes almost completely. It's It's about... Absorption, people say, oh, absorption's no good because it, it only absorbs high frequency. Well, uh, unless it's a lot really of the thick. problems are high frequency, yeah. But, yeah, some problems only have a high frequency component. So, job done. Yeah, and, and like I say, my computer can just be on the desk in front of me because it doesn't make any noise. But my drives and power supplies, less so. But they can be gone and hidden behind the, the quilt of quiet. 
A lovely, uh, a lovely I like that. line. Hey, I'm riffing. <laughs> and on that, we will move along uh, and we'll move on to some community feedback. And these are sponsored by our friends at RSPE Audio Solutions. The Pro Tools Expert Community Feedback is brought to you with the kind support of RSPE Audio Solutions. Great people and great prices. And RSP, you've got some really good deals on Avid hardware. But the problem is that the prices are so low, we can't share them with you here. So if you want to find out how good these prices are on Avid hardware from RSPE, then you'll need to give them a call or reach out to them uh, via internet technology. And you can use a special link that we've got in the podcast notes to get in touch with them. And we don't have any community feedback this week, so we should probably get on with something else. Okay, so let's move on to questions from the community. Yes, uh, Trevor Yearwood's been in touch. Um, I wonder if... uh any of you have a way to document your sessions and projects, i.e. track sheets, metadata, info, etc. Thanks for everything that you do. Well, um, this could be a bit uh, quick, actually. Mike, you go first. <laughs> okay. Um, what you may not be aware of uh, is in Pro Tools, the, there is a export session as text. So that will give you quite a lot of information in a text document. Um, so that's one place you can look at. The second area is there are a number of places, obviously the mix window below the faders, if you show comments, uh, above, uh, below each, uh, at this eye, at the bottom of each track, each channel strip, you can put all sorts of notes. Um, if you've got uh, external hardware, then um, use the excellent free snapshot plugin, um, and you can take pictures of your hardware. So again, the info stays with your session. The problem with with paper is it's not in the same place as your session now by all means create documents and that's my final suggestion is if you want to create additional documents then by all means create them but save them inside the pro tool session folder so that when you back that session up which of course everybody does um tongue-in-cheek um then you back up all that additional information. So my view is very much use what's already in Pro Tools uh, in terms of uh, notes, uh, use additional tools, and and put documents in the uh, session folder. Anybody else got any advice? I'm with you on the using the notes section at the bottom. That's useful if you put in just, I don't know, like just the mic name that you used. Yeah. Um, often I'll write in there, if I'm working on a session with a client and I know I'm not going to see them for the next month, I will use those uh, little comment sections at the bottom of the tracks a lot. Things like, this is a guide vocal, we will redo this. Because that kind of information can sometimes get forgotten especially if four weeks turns into eight weeks since you last saw the client. You go, there was something we were going to do in this session. What was it? What was it? Ah, no, it's in the track. We're going to do this. That was a guide. We were going to fix the timing on this. You know, so we've got like, it's like a checklist um, for the next session so I don't forget. So, yeah, very useful section, that. Now, my take on this, I, I used to use the comments more than I do now, actually. I've sort of fallen, fallen away from that a bit. I During tracking, it's really useful to, to drop markers on the fly for just kind of stuff. Oh, yes. I mean, of course, but... The thing that the only thing that I use pen and paper for is uh, for tracking. Um, what I'll what I'll tend to do is, I mean, 
any kind of proper tracking that I do is always I'm taking a system to a place to record. And I, I love that kind of thing anyway. I really enjoy sort of planning the session. But it'll always be a, a, a pen and paper. What gear am I taking? What have I got to record? How many inputs have I got available? What mics have I got? What How's it all going to work? Because if you're going somewhere, you want to make sure you've got everything in the car that you're going to need. But it's really good to get that stuff straight in the same way as you do a, a patch list when you're, when you're setting up a, a, a live show. And yeah. that's really useful. The other thing that's really useful is taking a photo of the setup. Just if you want to do it again, having a photo of the drum kit <laughs> so yeah, you know yeah. how stuff was like, that kind of thing can be really useful. Especially if you end up having to redo it a, a significant period later mm. or you've done about 10 or 15 other ones in the intervening period and you can't quite remember was it this one that i did this thing with totally and it's just things like you know where exactly were the overheads mm. you know um how did i you know that kind of thing and i mean you can do that kind of thing on guitar cabinets and stuff if you want to as well and again those if those are photographs then you can use snapshot and save them in the session and you You've always got them there to uh, refer back to without having to look somewhere else. My probably my favourite photo from like a, a session photo uh, is from years ago tracking uh, tracking a friend's band uh, in Cornwall, and uh, the the bass player had got a uh, an old Squire Precision, but it was made in the Japanese factory, and he's terribly proud of it. And he pretty much ruined it electrically by doing some mods on it. He won't hear this, so I'll be fine saying that. But uh, like many players' instruments, it, it had got significant amounts of buzz going on, and you needed to touch an earth through the strings the whole time, which was kind of yeah, a bit of a drag. So I've got a photo of a, a spare guitar cable stuffed in like people used to with cigarettes behind the strings on the headstock, going down and then stuck <laughs> between his toes in between his flip-flop to give a constant earth the whole time, which uh, um, I'm sure if his amp had blown up would have probably killed him, I don't know. But uh, anyway, it was, it was a very amusing picture. John Kirshen has been in touch. Just read your analysis of ionine overheating issues. Not being so technical, I figure you know what you're talking about. I wouldn't take that for granted, actually, but there we go. I'm in an Apple netherworld right now. I have a new 2018 MacBook Pro, 2.6 i7, uh, 16 gig of RAM, 512 gig SSD. In fact, it's my fifth machine since mid-December. Really? Um, all ran extremely hot and the battery life at 30% of advertised, 10 hours normal use. All of this when upgraded to Mojave. Uh, current machine has Mojave native and was manufactured in November 2018. Battery life sucks. Apple Care understands and has no fix. I was prepared to return for a full refund now. My wife convinced me to keep plug in and wait for a fix. I'm trying to find anyone who actually has the same MacBook Pro who doesn't have these problems. Is this something that you're aware of right now? For your information, open lid at 8am, battery at 100%. Now 8.26, coconut says 81% and Apple 85%. All I'm doing is emails and browsing. Your site. Thanks for your help. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Are we going to be any help? There's a bit of a fruit salad going on there with coconut and apple. but uh, yeah, 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 no, yeah. James and Russ have these machines. Okay. Yeah, and um, no trouble at all. And they don't, because they, we would know, um, yeah. James would be effing and blinding. Um, yeah, they don't have problems with them. And James uses his MacBook hard. 
<laughs> Did you see yes. the state of his last one? Um, yeah, uses it hard. And yeah, we'd know. We would know. Mm. Sounds like you've got a rotten apple there, John. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. so, uh, that's not good. I'm not, well, I'm not or taking... even five of them. I, I yeah. mean, it's for, to get five on the row, I have to ask, is there something? Is there some piece of software you've installed? Is there something which is... To all intents and purposes, unique to you to get five machines on the row all coming with, in with the same problem. Yeah, okay. Occasionally, you'll get a rogue. Yeah, I got um, I got a busted uh, MacBook Pro yeah. years ago, new out of the box, and I took it back, and they replaced it. It was fine. Um, um, but five, I have to ask whether there is something that you're doing. Whether there's a piece of software, whether there's a peripheral. peripheral Are you exchanging that, your your power your power supply? With each new machine, yeah, I don't know if that's yeah. possible. Yeah. But you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, Something yeah. Like that. No, US, USB hubs. There was a USB hub I used many, many years ago on an old first gen Mac Pro. I'm talking eight, nine years ago. The machine stopped working. Uh, I took it in to get replaced. The logic board had gone on it. I got it back, plugged it in. It works. The next day, I plugged back in my peripherals. This USB hub plugged it back in, and it stops working. A cheap USB hub knocks out my Mac. Um, hmm. Just it. Yeah, put that in the bin, took it out, obviously, and uh, turned it back on, the Mac was working. So I had to question if my logic board was really broken in the first place. Yeah. So have a look at all the anything you might be hanging on to it, hanging on the end of it, whether it's even a mouse or anything that's plugged into it. Uh, yes, absolutely, Julian. If if it's still the same power adapter, maybe that is not charging the battery properly or whatever. Um, I really would take your machine in its exact form that it's currently and take it to your a local Apple store if you've got one with and make a genius bar appointment before you actually go. So you you have a booked appointment and get them to actually look at it because again they've got all sort access to all sorts of cleverness tools and stuff uh, which we don't have access to. Um, uh, so I'm really sorry. Other than these suggestions, there's not really much else we can do to help you uh, from a distance. But yeah, we've certainly got two team members using the, these new MacBook Pros uh, very successfully. I also know somebody else working in the audio post sector who has got the new uh, i9 uh, MacBook Pro 2018. And again, I'm sure if he was having battery problems, I'd have known about it by now. So um I know the current uh, health advice is for is for five fruit or veg a day, but I'm not sure they mean it like this. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Peter O'Toole, help, please. My power supply has blown out. Um, I took out my eight gig RAM video card, replaced it, and upgraded to the latest Windows OS and Pro Tools. Now Pro Tools will not activate the FireWire card. I have tried a new Windows 10 driver, uh, 1394 compliant driver, and the legacy driver, Avid gives no help so why my only option would be to replace my sapphire 56 big money can anyone uh, help mike you got an idea here yeah I, I suspect that your power supply failure um has also damaged your firewire card um because you're comp- can appear to be completely unable to address it i think your firewire card has died uh so whatever happened with the power supply failing has taken out the uh the firewire card however um just looking reading between the lines as it were you you say you take out a a, an 8 gig ram uh, video card a graphics card graphics cards of that nature take a lot of power 
Now, if your computer wasn't originally designed to take one of those graphics cards, so you've put, you've added subsequently a much more powerful graphics card, and you didn't upgrade your power supply, because we're talking a Windows machine here. Um, so if you didn't upgrade your, your power supply, it's possible that the 8 gig video uh, graphics card was drawing so much power that that's actually what caused the power supply to fail. Um, so if you've now got new technology and you haven't actually replaced that power supply for a larger capacity one that is designed to uh, handle everything in the computer, your drives, your CPU, your motherboard, all that stuff, as well as an 8 gig uh, video graphics card, then this problem could reoccur. So I think rather than trying to replace your interface... Um, Firewire cards are not uh, expensive. 50, 60 bucks should get you a perfectly good uh, Firewire card. And I would have a go at replacing the Firewire card first. But uh, I wouldn't. Yeah. I'd do one thing before that. Um, last, last week, I, was, I moved my Mac back. So I just pushed it back gently. Had to get to the side of it to get something, you know, I had a box around there. Um, went to turn on my system the next day and my USB peripherals wouldn't turn on. I've got a USB 3 card in the back of my Mac. Uh, I don't know how I did it. But I managed to push in the cards into oh, the machine. So un effectively unseated, unseated it. it. Yeah, I unseated it. And I thought, first thing, I looked at my Scarlet, which runs basically my monitors, not my monitors, um, the sound from my Mac, so YouTube and all that sort of stuff. I looked at it and thought, have you died? Because I'm running it every day. And I thought, no, surely this hasn't died. I haven't done, you know, haven't broken it. I looked at the Mac and just noticed that the card was slightly um, at a jar. So I took mm. it off, reseated it, and it worked. So... Uh, yeah, yeah, you, that would you, certainly be something worth trying before you, have you buy your, a new one. Well, yeah, no, exactly. But you have put your hands inside your machine and put a new card in it. There is a chance that you might have knocked the Firewire cards. Yeah, no, <laughs> very good idea. Take it out, well put it back in. trying that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, I think we need to move on. The Pro Tools Expert Podcast is created using Source Connect Now from Source Elements. Register now for your free account at now.source-elements.com. If you've ever tried to do interviews over the internet with apps like Skype, uh, you'll know how hit and miss the audio quality and connection can be. Even on a good day, it isn't really good enough for a long-form interview. We now use Source Connect Now, which offers ISDN equivalent quality audio using a Chrome browser. No software to install. To get your free account, follow the link in the podcast notes. Okay, so find of the week. Uh, Dan, what's your find of this week? Oh, my monitor blew up. I've had a bit of a week this week. Um, so your screen, your computer yeah, my Yeah, my computer screen. Uh, doing some work down in the studio on, on Sunday, coming for a bit of lunch, went back down there, wouldn't turn on. Um, something's gone in it. But it's only 18 months old, so I thought, oh, well, it's out of warranty. wasn't particularly expensive. So time to get a new one. And Anytime I need to buy a new monitor, I always up the size a little bit more because my eyes aren't great. I'm partially sighted. So 10 years ago, I was working on a 22-inch display in the studio. Over the years, I think it went to 25, 27. The one that's just blown up is 32. So I thought I'd go a little larger this time round, uh, 43 inches. <laughs> <laughs> so your monitor's got its own postcode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, it is pretty big. It turns Visible up tomorrow. From space. No, but you've got to think about these things. So I've got a 43-inch display coming. I thought, oh, that's it. It was 499 quid. I thought, fairly good value for money for a 4K display. 
Yeah, it's 2019. It's not bad money. Uh, it's Phillips, by the way. Um, we'll put a link in the podcast notes if you're interested. Um, and I thought that was it. Open, close. No. I then checked the weight at which my arm, you know, the uh, the display arm that I've got it attached to, um, can take the weight of this. It can't. So I've had to replace that as oh. well. Um, but instead of an arm, it looks more like a trolley. Um, <laughs> which is hilarious. So I've set that up. That turned up today. So it's just a great big sort of long trolley that I can stick a screen on. That's I've measured it. It's going to fit behind my Avid C24. It's the width of a C24. So now I've had to move my monitors, my studio monitors, and do that <laughs> do that whole dance of making sure that I've got them in the right position, rerun sonar works, because the monitors were at least three inches, four inches out than they were before. Ah, all because a monitor blew up a display. So basically, anyway. you've, just, you've just got your own version of the school TV trolley in your yes, studio. Yes, it's basically that. <laughs> yes, it is, it is that. Yeah, yeah just about the... Um, VHS uh, machine <laughs> in the front of it, yeah. <laughs> but a 4K monitor, um, yes. everything's going to be minute if you run it at native and resolution. I'm not, not going to either. <laughs> Absolutely not doing that. That's uh, no, 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 no. You need to see what I'm doing. So I'll be running that at normal sort of HD just to make it massive and easy for me to see. But yeah. I think I will be writing an article on this very soon. Um, I, think it's, I think it's time that the industry sort of takes 4K on now yeah. uh, in plug-in design and in DAWs as well. Yes. Mike, what's your find of the week? Uh, mine is uh, new versions of the RTW uh, metering packages. That's both um, loudness tools uh, and mastering tools. So suites of plugins with appropriate uh, metering uh, tools for both applications. Um, and they brought out a new version uh, it's got uh, support for higher uh, channel paths, uh, channel routes for uh, Pro Tools. Uh, they brought a stereo-only version out. So for people who don't need multi-channel, then there's a much cheaper version that's just for stereo. So if you're just mastering uh, st- stereo tracks and you don't need all the uh, multi-channel because you're just working in stereo, then you can now get, the say, the mastering tools much cheaper than you could before. Uh, so some great, uh, it's a great improvement on what has already uh, a, a very reliable tool, and especially coming from their hardware um, history. I mean, RTW have been making hardware meters for a long time, and only relatively recently been uh, moved into the plugin world. So uh, that's my find of this week, Julian. What about you? Well, I'm, I'm hoping I haven't done this one before because I've had it for quite some time. But uh, mine's the Avid Dock, which, like I say, I've had for quite a while. And I did, a, I've, I've done the first of, um, well, definitely more than one. It was kind of tutorial. I don't know. I mean, I, it, it didn't quite feel like a tutorial. Maybe it was like an introductory thing, but sharing some thoughts and some things that I particularly liked about it. I've got another one coming, which looks at uh, specific uses I've got. For, I've just been setting up a macro and showing how to do that and what the macro is for. Um, I like it. I have to say it's and the reason I concentrated so much on the first video that I did on stuff that sounds kind of really obvious like it's got transport buttons on it and stuff which is like kind of like yeah so what but um if you look at what any the the big hurdle that any control surface for pro tools faces is it's got to get pull you away from your keyboard and get you to focus on it instead of on the keyboard and if you're constantly going back to your keyboard every few seconds for something as basic as start and stop 
or something like that, then it's not in with a chance. So no. just having stuff like that, it's surprising how just, I mean, I don't know it well at all. I haven't had it long enough, but I had a bit of a chat with Dave Tyler from Avid at, at NAM, and he sort of showed me a few things that that uh, he, he shared with me about that, which I'll, I'll, I'll feature in some later stuff. Nothing revolutionary, but just some nice sort of stuff from someone who knows it way better than me. And yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's surprising how quickly you end up spending the majority of your time on it rather than on mm-hmm. the keyboard. And that speaks volumes, really does. Yeah, I think the biggest thing I noticed uh, when I had uh, an Avid Doc on loan was all these um, smart buttons that are on the iPad app, which, which of course are all on glass, so you get no tactile feedback. That, that block of... Uh, eight by two buttons at the bottom which are you know just areas on the on the ipad screen mm. now have um hardware tactile feedback uh, buttons and the leds actually in those buttons take up the color that you allocate mm. to the to the graphics in the in the app and those that was for me one of the most useful things and uh, was was and again being able to create um, macros of my own <clears throat> uh, create macros of my own which i could then uh, allocate to those mm-hmm. uh, to those buttons uh, was incredibly useful uh, in terms of saving time yeah i'm glad you said that because that's the other thing that was in the video that i did on the site last week so yeah <laughs> great minds and all that indeed and on that uh, it's uh, time to say good night so good night from me good night for me and it's good night from me 